2: Live from the Nasdaq market side in the heart of New York City's Times Square. Yes, we're back. This is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. The Fed in focus. The central bank throwing water in hopes for a March rate cut and sending stocks to their lows of the session. The Nasdaq seeing its worst loss since October we will break down all the headlines and what they mean for your money. Plus, a regional route. Shares of New York Community Bancorp seeing their worst day on record as the lender swung to a loss and slashed its dividend. What caught investors so off guard and what ripple effects should we expect in the rest of the sector? And Novo Nordisk leaps to a new all-time high. Google's parent fails a key-level test. And one of our traders is checking out their target stake. The reasons behind the trade coming up. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, and Michael Cantopoulos of Richard Bernstein Advisors. Welcome, Michael. We start off with the Fed warning that stocks stumbling, the Nasdaq falling more than 2% for its worst day since October. The S&P down more than a percent and a half, its worst day since September. And the Dow shed over 300 points. And take a look at the 10-year, closing back in on 3.9%. It was almost 30 basis points higher just last week. The moves coming after Fed Chair Jerome Powell suggested the central bank has no plans yet to cut rates where with inflation where it is. CNBC's Steve Leisman joins us now with all the headlines. I don't know. I feel like it shouldn't have been such a surprise. And yet here we are, Steve.
1: Yeah, sometimes when the market hears it, it's a different story from what it otherwise has heard. The Fed sending stocks and bonds, Melissa, lower as it slammed, the yields lower, obviously, as it slammed and opened a series of doors when it came to interest rate policy today. Let's go through it. On the issue of more rate hikes, just about closed that door, saying no longer talking about additional policy firming. On rate cuts this year, it opened that door pretty definitively, saying they were coming, but not yet. On March cuts, just about closed that door, not quite entirely shut, but mostly market reaction was barely muted until Fed Chair Jay Powell in the press conference shut the door to the March cut, saying the Fed needed more confidence. Inflation was headed to the 2 percent target, even while it's been there for six months.
3: Based on the meeting today, I would tell you that I don't think it's likely that the committee will reach a level of confidence by the time of the March meeting to identify March as the time to do that. But that's that's to be seen.
1: The probability of a March rate cut sunk from nearly 60% early in the day to 35%. But futures market trade is as if a May or a June cut, you can see there, is a near certainty, up near 90%. And there's more. I'll get to that now. While markets have now priced in later cuts, they haven't much changed the outlook for how many cuts will happen this year. The year-end the year funds rate is trading at 386, or just about six-quarter point hikes still in play this year. Now, that would mean if the Fed doesn't go in March, it will still have It will start off doing fifty basis point cuts to meet the market, and the market is pricing in now a one third chance of a fifty in May and a forty six percent chance of one in June. So the market is saying the Fed and Jay Powell are probably making a mistake by not going in March, and they're going to have to catch up later. Melissa,
2: I'm. I'm just. That's uh, mind boggling to me. See that they're going to price in fifty um, later on. In terms of the the statement, and what what stood out to me was the change in language surrounding. The description of the banking system. There was language in it before that the bank, and, and with with New York Community Bank now on the radar. I'm just wondering if how how you perceive that change.
1: Yeah, it might have been one of those things where they jinxed it on the very day that the Fed removed that concern about bank tightening. You did have concern with uh, New York Community Bank that sent earlier in the day the whole regional banking index lower, uh, as well as raising the probability of a March rate cut. So. That, that, that was interesting. They did it today. We'll have to see if that goes on and creates other issues that are out there. But overall, Melissa, I, I, I like your comment at the top. It was pretty well expected. I will say I was surprised that Powell shut the door so definitively on that March cut. But the result is that what happened is the market just said, OK, you're going to give it to us, but you're going to give it to us later. So the net effect on um, uh, uh, financial conditions was really not to loosen it much at all. Steve, take your journalist cap off and put your
4: economist cap back on. This reinversion of the yield, ca- I mean, it is confounding a lot of people. I mean, it felt like we were going to flatten out in twos, tens. Now we're
1: reinverting. What it, does it mean anything to you whatsoever? It does mean something to me. And as you know, Guy, I had the party hats and the kazoos out not too long ago for that 210 disinversion. It didn't happen. It got really close. You can see it there on the chart. It was as close as minus 14. Now it's back down to minus 28. I think it would be helpful to the economy if the Fed were to disinvert the yield curve, create a positive slope, would make it easier for banks to lend. It would also dissipate some of the concerns at the regional banks. But the Fed is saying, you know what? That's a risk we're going to take because the need to stamp out inflation definitively is much greater than whatever might be happening either at the banks or the negative effects of an inverted yield curve. Hey, Steve, it's Tim. I like you in your journalist hat and your economist hat,
5: whatever <laughs> guy says. Put um, your music my, hat. It's more important. Well, you're, there's no one better in that hat. But but <laughs> how about Powell's upgrade of the economy? What, what, what do we think about that? And because we're going to boil this back to an equity market that was disappointed today. But, you know, you know in The economist Hat, what, what do you think about that? Is that, is that? is that a surprise
1: in the face of what people are actually looking for reasons why they might cut? No, Tim, and I'm glad you brought that up because, really, I tried to ask a question about that. I'm not sure I got the bestest answer. I'm not sure I asked the bestest question, I guess I'd say. But here's the story. The Fed has this situation where growth is relatively strong despite the huge rate hikes that have been out there. That says that maybe they're not really restraining the economy that much. On the other hand, it has inflation coming down, which tells you that it's having an effect. He said, by the way, that he expects rate hikes to have a greater effect as the year goes on. So the Fed does have this dilemma and it's talking about um, uh, risks being balanced. But when you see where they side for the moment... They're siding on being extra double careful that inflation won't reignite. Is that the right call? I don't know. But the real question here, Tim, how long, how big is the window uh, for the Fed? to really make that decision. Is it something the Fed needs to do relatively quickly, or is there a situation where if it doesn't act soon, the easing it will provide the economy will take too long to work into the economy? Right now, the way Powell looks at it, as you said, he said the economy's strong. He's taking that and saying, I got time to be opportunistic about reducing inflation.
6: Hey, hey, Steve, uh, Mike Antopoulos here. Quick, quick question on, you know, sounded like Powell Um, Became a bit more data dependent today. I know he mentioned that during the presser. If you're data dependent, how can you take March off the table? Say you're not going to hike again. I
1: mean, it sounds like you know they weren't data dependent at all. Any thoughts on that, Mike? I think that's a good point. Um, I I think what he's saying is I'm data dependent, but I'm depending on more data. I think that's (laughs) the way to put it. Um, And and maybe I'm I'm just helping him out a little bit here. Uh, What what he said continuously was we need more. We're confident. But we need more confidence, and you know we're all sitting there as journalists in the room, kind of raising our eyebrows and saying, "Hey, Jay, you got six months, two quarters of it of of of, of inflation, uh, the PCE core, a uh, core PCE being at two percent. The three month is even better than that. Even the service sector one that he follows so carefully is coming down. You think it's enough? But then again, you know what? You're on the line for the trades. He's on the line for the policy. I think what you're hearing him say is, I, I. The one thing I don't want to have happen here is have inflation come back and have to reverse course, especially, by the way, I wonder if the election plays a bit of a role in that. It's pretty a bad situation, I think, if the Fed were to reverse course in the middle of an election. Better to be really sure that they're doing what they're going to be going in the right direction. He did talk about a process. He used that word a process, which tells you that they're not thinking about just one cut once they start. So he doesn't want to, you know, whatever the word is. Uh, Let let the, the the monster out of the cage until he's sure that he's got it under control.
7: Hey, Steve, it's Karen. I've been sort of surprised at how strong GDP was and sort of continues to be. How do you think about productivity or is there some other something that's going on that would explain this?
1: It's hard to say who's asked the better question here, but that's my favorite one for sure. Um, They've all been great, but the productivity story is one I don't know if we're talking enough about, Karen. You want to be really careful because the productivity data is something that is very volatile, quarter to quarter, month to month, even year to year. But it does look like something is going on underneath the surface of the economy when it comes to productivity, where we're just producing more stuff with fewer workers, and the workers who are there are producing more. I think it's early days for AI yet to be talking about that, but it does appear as if productivity certainly, after concern a year or so ago, has come back to the pre-pandemic trend and it may be that it's moved higher. I'm starting to read some, uh, some interesting data being put together by Steve Davis, who is a work-from-home absolute specialist when it comes to it. And he thinks part of the productivity story is linked to work-from-home, as well as other things that are going on in the economy. So I would just say, Karen, I think you're on the right track. Watch that space very carefully, because it could be extremely consequential for stocks and the broader economy, and of course, inflation, growth, and employment.
2: Steve, thank you, as always. Steve Pleasure. Leisman coming to us from D.C. So let's talk about this market reaction. And we referenced this at the top. It was almost like, why are you so surprised? And yet here we are. So if we're offsized when it comes to now Powell shutting the door on a March cut, yeah. how offside are we going to be later on when the Fed doesn't cut 50 basis points?
4: <laughs> we're looking at through the lens of the Fed announcement or the commentary caused the market. I guess you could, but, you know, the VIX was elevated long before the Fed presser today, right, or Fed announcement, which we've had that conversation on our call, and I think the market was looking for an excuse, and we talked about earnings last night, so you could absolutely cast blame on this Fed presser today and all the commentary out of it. I would submit to your earlier point, it shouldn't be a surprise, and maybe there's something else going on right now.
2: What do you think, Michael? What do the great minds at Richard Bernstein Advisors say about this market move? Uh,
6: you know, th- let's put aside the market move for a second. I think it uh, was completely irrational for the market to be pricing in such a high odds of a, a cut in March. So that certainly did not surprise us at all. I, I still think it's completely irrational that the market's pricing in six cuts till the end of the year. I mean, that just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us whatsoever. The way that I look at it is what's the higher probability? right, with GDP humming at 5 percent in Q3, 3 percent in Q4, you know, the consumer's still strong, profit growth accelerating, that we're in recession that causes the Fed to cut, you know, six times or that maybe inflation stagnates. And I think that's what Powell told us today. The higher probabilities that inflation hangs out in that sort of 3 percent range, not that we're headed to recession. And the markets maybe haven't really woken up to that yet, you know.
5: Well, to, to me, the move of the day is the bond market. The move is is the ten-year, and and if you if you look at a one2 point rally in the ten-year. That's not an environment where the economy is a little stronger, and where um, the Fed is us upgra- Yeah, Fed is essentially upgraded the economy, and things are okay. We're pushing it down the road a little bit because we'd rather risk uh, waiting a little bit longer. That's a market that's doing two things. First of all, I think some portion of that is New York Community Bank, and we're going to talk about that. But some major part of that is the Fed is actually going to wait way too long and push this thing over the hill, and, and that's really fascinating. On it, over the hill meaning you know recession, and and be you know. And, and actually put too much. republic. The, the, the lower inflation goes and the more Fed funds stay at these levels, everybody knows this, but I'll say it clearly, the, it becomes much more restrictive, right? And there's a dynamic here that people are concerned that the Fed, what they told you today, the two things I heard, and we just said it, um, the labor market's too tight, and we're not at our inflation target. They, were, they couldn't have been clearer about that. So the bond market, to me, says that Fed is not even close to doing what we want. It's not that equities have a bad backdrop here. It's that equities, the S&Ps rallied 20% since October 26th, and, and we've had a great start to the year, and everybody thought the Fed was not going to be a factor.
2: It seems like for a while now, we have assumed that the long and variable lag effects of the rate hikes have come and gone. But today, he really opened the door to, you know what, policy is going to, you, you'll continue to feel it as the year goes on. So that's still the wild card here, or a wild card at least.
7: One thing I thought was odd, I, I think that bonds were already By the
2: already way, congrats moving...
5: for having the best question.
7: Oh, thank you. Really. No, no, no. It's no. usually <laughs> how it goes. It's
5: usually, <laughs> it's usually how it goes okay, around here, by the way. You. It's always Karen, but anyway.
7: Um, well, so the bonds, <laughs> bonds had already moved yields lower, bonds higher before this came out. So half of that move already happened, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know that this, what seems like a big move in the bond market is actually that big. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm. I'm I, I, I agree with you that we were set up for some kind of pullback. The market strength over the last month has been, to me, quite surprising. You know, and then last night you had earnings that were good to very good that were met with kind of ho hum, right? You got to show us something new, and so it, it's not surprising that we would have this. What should should have been even a bigger sell-off in the triple Qs. I mean, they were off a lot, but if you think about how far they've come, I don't know, sometimes it's just, it might not be this particular thing that caused the sell-off, but we were absolutely due for some. And if this is all there is, I'd be surprised. I would think, we, you know, the bar is still high for earnings the rest of the week.
2: All right. Speaking of earnings, let's get to Qualcomm here, giving up earlier games now after our session lows, even after the chip company reported a beat on the top and the bottom lines for its latest quarter. The earnings call is happening now. Christina Parsnobles has got all the details. Christina. Yeah, it's happening
0: right now in the building that I'm in, but let's talk about that revenue beat. It included handsets as well as the auto business, but it's internet of things. The IoT business actually fell 32% quarter over quarter, which is quite negative and a trend that we also saw from AMD yesterday. Guidance was largely in line with estimates too, so that could be contributing to maybe the, the stock drop that we're seeing. But on the earnings call right now, Qualcomm CEO announcing that they are extending their licensing agreement with Apple, licensing, until 2027. So that means, Apple is not only using Qualcomm chips in its new phone through 2026, but it's also going to utilize its licenses through 2020 or until 2027. Separately, not to confuse our audience, Qualcomm announcing a multi year agreement. I asked specifically what multi year means, they wouldn't tell me, with Samsung to provide smartphone chips for their premium smartphones starting from 2024, this year onwards. So, like Apple, Qualcomm now has partnerships with Samsung for chips and licenses. I caught up with Qualcomm CFO maybe about 40 minutes ago who said the beat was driven by their premier t- premium tier smartphone business. They're noticing customers are just willing to dish out the dough on smartphones as they become personal computers, personal TVs, and they believe that willingness to spend more on phones will help drive generative AI to the edge, you know, PCs, smartphones, etc., and offset any slowing smartphone replacement cycle that we're starting to see now. But I'll have all uh, details about that and much more with my interview with Qualcomm CEO. It's an exclusive exclusive on CNBC at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Last Call.
2: Mel? All right, Chris, Christina, thank you. We look forward to that. Christina Parts Nevelis at Qualcomm headquarters here. So why is the stock down? Everything that Christina had mentioned would seem to be positive. The stock is cheap. It's underperformed the SMH over the past 12 months.
5: Well, I, I, I needed, I mean, I just was looking at this, show because it was a 51% from October 26th. It's so just to the recent run. 50%! It added half of its market cap. In other words, it became almost one half more of a, co- anyway, sorry for the... <laughs> I I just think we've gotten to a place with a lot of the semiconductors. Uh, Qualcomm, different than the AI, although, you know, bulls in the stock have a 25 AI smartphone dynamic priced into this thing right now. Um, But you you really had a dynamic where we already heard that the smartphone market was even doing a little bit better than the seasonals and that you had this this inventory pulled forward by a lot of the supply chain. I think that's in the price. Um, There was nothing bad here. Uh, I don't think you need to run out and buy it. In fact, I think a lot of people are hoping chip stocks pull back so they can buy them.
4: If you look at the August, go back to August of 2022, we traded up to 154 and failed. This is where we got up to about a week or so ago. But to Tim, the quarter was so good that I think people were expecting the second quarter guidance to be somewhat commensurate with that. It was not. So I think the second quarter guide might have scared some people on top of what Tim just said. Valuation, you can make a really great case for it, but to your point, it's run a lot. I don't think you're looking for reasons to sell it. You're looking for an area to buy it. And to Tim's point, it probably has a couple... Probably a couple more dollars to the downside before you get there.
2: All right. Coming up, no sign the weight loss drug boom is slimming down. Shares of Novo Nord is surging on its latest profit report. So will the pharma gains keep coming? we got the details next. Plus, we are surrounding the big box trade. One retailer laying out some expansion plans. Whoa. Well, one of our traders is selling out of another. Why she says competition could make this name miss the mark. We're back in two.
8: This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Novo Nord is soaring to a fresh all-time high today after posting super super-sized fourth-quarter results. The drug makers' sales rising 36% on a constant currency basis, boosted by the popularity of its obesity drugs. Novo now anticipating 2024 sales to grow by as much as 26%. Joining us now to dig into the obesity boom, Jared Holes, the healthcare sector strategist at Mizuho. Jared, great to have you with us. Thank you. I feel like everybody expected a gangbusters quarter. When does the rubber hit the road in mm. terms of having to prove the stocks run? I mean, it's I don't want to say it's easy, but when there's more demand for your drug than you can make, it's pretty easy to meet uh, expectations.
9: Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. The quarter, I actually didn't think it was so gangbuster, thought it was good relative to expectations. Slight beat. Um, But yeah, I think if the party line from Novo is that the demand supply and balance favors them by a great deal, which it seems like it does. I feel like people still want to own the stock.
2: Anecdotally, I hear that ZetBound is a lot easier to get a hold of. Um, And Novo is saying that they're going to increase production of the lower dose. And I'm just wondering what what your read is, because in theory, Lilly's molecule should be much more effective than Novo Nordis. So are you going to see some sort of differentiation at any point? Like, when will you start thinking maybe people are opting for ZetBound over Wigovi?
9: I think they are. Um, I'm not sure what's more available where. I think it's regional and and just based on the distribution cycle, things of that nature. But, um, yeah, the data for ZepBound is better. I think if you're a patient and you kind of are in the know in terms of what the weight loss data looks like and things of that nature, then you're probably going to opt for Eli Lilly's drug. If you don't really care, you just want something that's going to give you 15 to 20% weight loss, you probably just want to get whatever you can get your hands on, which was the case back in the fourth quarter, is sort of the case now. I still think that, like, for the for the most part, this is a metropolitan area drug, it hasn't even gotten into the rest of the country, which is why Lily Direct came about. We t- talked about that earlier this year and things like that. So those are all the tailwinds. The headwinds, at a certain point, they haven't been valuation one. But what's the next
4: thing? What's the potential, not existential risk, but derails these stocks in the short term? Or competitive
9: zone? risk. Or yeah, competitive I mean, it's risk. Just, it's yeah. as if there's two horses in this there's race.
2: 70 drugs in development, seven zero right now.
9: Yeah, I, I think the, the impediment for the stocks to keep on going up would be one of two things. Pay your push back to the extent where you start hearing from managed care, enough is enough. We can't take the influx of prescriptions. We're going to put barriers, mm-hmm. you know, in order for people to get these medications. Or you start seeing pipeline failures, either at Lilly or Nova. Like there's a lot of anticipation that Eli Lilly is going to have this oral drug pretty soon, right? There's going to be data for it this year. And that's going to be the next leg of the story for them as patients kind of wean themselves off the injectable, they go onto the oral. If the oral's not very good, if there's some safety issue, I think that stock takes a hit too. And then obviously valuation. I mean, they're, they're leagues above anything else in the peer group.
7: So, in totally unrelated industries, we've seen huge demand and then an oversupply. Mm-hmm. And so, we're at that point now where there's this real choke point of not enough supply. How long do you think it takes to get that imbalance?
9: I think it's really tough to, to say, Karen. Um, I think some of it depends on the international expansion, right? This is a U.S.-dominated drug for the, in the meantime. Novo put in, is putting in $6 billion worth of infrastructure additions this year. Eli Lilly, three. So at some point when that comes on board and they can make enough drug, then the supply-demand conversation kind of abates. And I think the bar is definitely higher as we move forward here.
2: Can I just switch gears just for the last question here, and, and that's the, the medical device makers which reported earnings, and they were gangbusters, all-time highs today, mm-hmm. and I was talking to Karen, I was like, you know, when you're hearing from insurers that medical loss ratios were higher because people were getting stuff done last quarter, it makes sense that these device makers saw great sales, and I'm wondering how much of that continues considering the insurers are assuming that those loss ratios remain high.
9: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's an impossible to qu- question to answer, honestly, um, you know, if United and Humana can't predict the future and have, you know, tons of actuaries working there and data supposedly, it's. I think it's tough for the street to figure out. But I would say another few quarters of this. I think that's what the medical device companies are saying. I think that's the read-through for managed care, that we're at least for the first half of this year, procedure volumes stay elevated. I think that's why the guidance out of Stryker and Boston has been so strong. But the key question is going to be when does it kind of start to you know, go the other way. I feel like there's going to be a plateauing effect at some point. Maybe it's mid this year into the second half. And then we can kind of like figure out what to do with both of those groups. But yeah, MedTech on fire, managed care at the other end.
2: All right, Jared, good to see you. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Jared Holes, where are we on these uh, weight loss stocks or
5: well, I, it, you know, much in the way we've seen some of the same strength in the mega cap tech stocks, we've seen some of the same strength here and, and some of almost the, the consolidation within the rest of the ranks. I continue to believe uh, the broader kind of value part of of healthcare looks interesting. It looks interesting, one, because expectations are so low. And I do think that you've priced in a lot of bad news. Having said all that, you know, Lilly reports in a couple days. And it's yeah. a it's a it's a very important day for the sector because a lot of these growth stocks really need to continue to grow. Right now, these valuations are are things that are, I think, a challenge.
2: Yeah, I think Bristol reports Friday are... I think so, and I think
5: Lily's
4: a six, but don't quote me. Medtronic, you know, we've mentioned that they were obviously getting lambasted on the back of all this. They finally got off the map, but in a pretty significant way, I think people are finally realizing, wait a second, there's value here. And I think despite the move recently, you could still own Medtronic MDT in earnings about a week and a half from now.
2: Coming up, a retail roundup. Walmart planning a major expansion, setting the stage for its first super center in two years. Meanwhile, Karen is ringing the register on another name that she fears could miss the mark. How competition could impact this trade next. Plus, regionals in the red as one bank gets crushed after earnings, the impact it is having on the broader financial space straight ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Walmart today announcing plans to open more than 150 super centers in the United States in the next five years. It would be the company's first expansion in two years. The large format locations will either be built new or converted from existing smaller stores. No word yet on where the stores will be or how much it will cost. Walmart shares were up more than 1% at their highs, close to a record, but end of the day, down about two tenths of a percent. Um, I thought this was interesting. Jeffrey's had an interesting note saying that every single time they've expanded stores, they've expanded, expanded their footprint, that's kicked off a cycle of EPS expansion. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, good good things to come here?
5: Well, I think EPS expansion and and is is part of the stories. I think it's multiple expansion at Walmart. And we're kind of seeing that in the stock. But they've made significant investments into their infrastructure, into their technology, even into their people. And, and the question is, if, you know, 165. This stock, you know, it, it got to 160 in April of 22, and it's at 165 now. It, it, you know, fortunately, a stock split here didn't rally the stock. It's not a tech company, and that's good to see. But, um, look, I think Walmart has some... Some headwinds with food inflation or disinflation, in other words, lack thereof. A lot of the things that we're driving, I think if you start to see some relief, I think they've picked up customers that I think they're not going to shake for a while, and I think to the detriment of Target. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't think Walmart has to take off from here, even though I think multiple expansions is the story. I had that blip
4: in the spring of 22 when they had their inventory problem. They clearly recovered from that, and it's never going to take off on you. I mean, that's just not the stock that is. But it can absolutely work for you in multiple expansion. It's always been expensive, but that doesn't mean it's warranted. And in, in this environment, a stock trading at its all-time high, I think that's pretty encouraging.
2: Meantime, Target has been bouncing back after a rough 2023, up almost 40% from October lows. But one of our traders here completely emptied the cart mm. of the retail stock. So, Karen, you sold Target yesterday. Yes, Why? I
7: did. I, you know, it was not a fire sale or anything like that. It's just sort of looking over the portfolio and thinking about – you know, if I don't have a huge conviction about something, this one, I mean, as you I bottomed out at 105, I feel relieved not to have, you know, sold it at the bottom. And now it was 140. And I just feel like it's not expensive, but it is no longer as cheap as it was. And I feel like, you know, you talk about Walmart as a competitor. That's important. But I also am a little concerned about uh, Timo and Shein as taking or picking off some of their customers in their highest margin businesses, right? So we know they have the grocery business to sort of... So
2: like bring, home goods and things yeah, that, goods, like that? Home goods, apparel, and things like and that. Vases, right. the thing that Tim likes Tim loves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah.
5: definitely, like mirrors and things like <laughs> yes. that. Yeah, Tim loves a mirror, right? <laughs> yes. We all know that. <laughs> so you, that. you walked <laughs> you mentioned right into that. Flower pots, colored flower <laughs> pots, I don't know. Yes. So, it.
7: It, you know, 17 eight, it's not crazy expensive at all, but I just feel like... Um, also, they, they, they are going to anniversary that gay pride fiasco where they right. managed to piss off both sides in a very huge way. Hopefully that doesn't happen again, but um, maybe that's actually, a, a, that'll be an easier comp, but I just felt like, all right, it's it's no longer sort of a layup yeah. time to go. Quick take on the
2: consumer, Michael.
6: Yeah, I mean, the consumer's been a lot healthier than uh, than I think expected, and, it you know, keeps surprising economists to the upside, so... Uh, we like discretionary stocks, uh, ex-tech, you know, big tech discretionary, but listen, the consumer's humming. When you have a 3.7% unemployment rate, uh, yes, the ECI came in lower than expected, but wages are still going up. The consumer's stronger than most expect, so... We're okay with discretionary.
2: You buy a lot of mirrors. <laughs> uh, you, you're the one who said mirrors, mirrors. Right? Out of everything no, you could I, have mentioned. Weird, mirrors, no, they have like
5: thing. Home Goods. They have like all these yeah, like mirrors, mirrors inside mirrors. of like a, a, a window frame, and it's just I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> let got <it, laughs> go.
2: Coming up, a rough spot for regionals. One New York lender touching its lowest level since the year 2000. How the drop is impacting the rest of the banks next. Plus, a huge day for big tech tomorrow. Apple, Amazon, Meta all gearing up to report results. And we've got a way to get into one of these names using options. That trade and more Fast Money into.
8: Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks dropping after the Federal Reserve left rates unchanged but signaled a March rate cut was unlikely. The Dow dropping more than 300 points, snapping a four-day winning streak. The S&P down 1.5%. And the Nasdaq leading the losses falling more than 2%. All three indices still notching a positive month. Shares of Boeing with a big move today up more than 5% after delivering a beat on the top and the bottom line this morning. The company holding off, holding off guidance as it still deals with the fallout from its 737 max issues. Paramount, meantime, also higher shares up nearly 7% after media entrepreneur Byron Allen submitted a $30 billion offer for the company, including debt. Some reports saying Allen had made a previous offer of nearly $19 billion last year. And GM up about 2% continuing its climb after yesterday's earnings. The company forecasting continued strong profit this year. Meantime, shares of New York Community Bank Corp. plunging nearly 40% today, its worst trading day on record. The company cutting its dividend, lowering its 2024 guidance as it tries to shore up its finances after taking over the failed Signature Bank. Joining us now is Raging Capital Ventures founder Bill Martin, who, by the way, predicted the fall of SVB last year. Bill, great to have you here on the show. Thank you. What was your take on, I don't want to say the excuses, the reasons um, behind New York Community Bank Corp.'s poorly received
3: earnings? Well, I woke up this morning thinking I was going to go long the stock. You know, it's been such a forgiving market that I was tempted to uh, to go long. But, you know, digging in, uh, it's, it's a mess. It's a real mess.
2: What stood out to you? Because it, it seemed like there were things that they were citing in their call that people should have known about or they should have known about, namely the two loans um, that were the primary reasons for the write downs. And then also, you know, the interest rate environments, which is not necessarily a surprise um and you know having to increase the reserves because of regulatory scrutiny all those things seem like you could have forecasted that a little bit better
3: yeah i mean it's it's just been a forgiving market you know the banks have all bounced Uh, investors have kind of forgotten about a lot of the issues we had last year but rewinding uh, nycb had issues you know early last year and uh, you saw regulators and the fdic step in and actually uh, that signature purchase really was of low-cost deposits, uh, to to in some sense I wouldn't call it a bailout, but to shore up NYCB's balance sheet and their lending situation.
7: So there was a lot on the call that just didn't make sense. As you're talking about, um, first of all, that they opened the presentation with their accomplishments for the quarter <laughs> or for the year, I guess it was. I still really don't understand. What what made them change their classification on these two loans? How big are they? What was the problem? They talked about non accruals, but valuation. One's an income, you know, one's income, one's valuation. I didn't really understand. I didn't understand what they were saying.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I think bank management's like to try to whistle past the graveyard if they can. And everyone's been trying to pretend that there aren't credit issues out there. And the commercial lending issues are slow, but they're
5: there and they're starting to ripen.
4: All right. So this seems to be New York Community Bank specific. Let's just play that for a second. But
5: he's not nodding his head. Yes,
4: by the no, way, he's just <laughs> sort of listening to the question. But, you know, Sheila Bair has been on the show. She's been concerned for quite some time. It was almost a year ago where we saw three different banks over the course of a couple of weeks. Is this the beginning of something or is this completely isolated? Well, look, cycles take time. And the
3: issue all these banks have been dealing with over the last year is net interest margin compression and Uh, Funding cost pressures, and so I think what you saw today was actually New York uh, they had uh, a lot of uh, Continued pressures on funding and they actually the amount they drew on the federal home loan bank spiked again And so they're still dealing with the same issues the industry's been dealing with over the past year I think what short sellers like myself are focused on moving forward is when does the credit shoe drop and that's been slow so far
5: but, but so back to, is it New York Community Bank or the KRE, which obviously got hammered? Now, it's a big waiting. You can probably do the math, and a lot of it's there. But uh, I'm looking at a Jeffrey's note, and they so they, they use the term... Idiosyncratic characteristics. So, but some of those idiosyncratic dynamics, including uh, a meaningful commercial real estate exposure in the loan mix, you know, 60% of loans, they're not alone on that stuff. So, in other words, yes, and the New York areas at least got some 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 concentration issues, but also the rapid growth of of their of their bank um, through acquisition, and and it also puts them in a different regulatory spotlight, which means maybe we know more about them than we might have you know a couple years ago. I just think, and maybe, you know, you've said this, you used the term whistling past the graveyard. I don't know if you're saying that's going on right now. Um, It's been a period where we've kind of forgotten about SVB. And we've kind of forgotten because uh, at least the the capital flight in the form of of deposits doesn't seem to be as big of an issue. But the credit dynamics, which is what really I think we should have been worried about all along.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, in 2008, the banks we focused on on the short side were banks that aggressively grew their lending book, particularly in the residential and construction areas. And, uh, you know, those were really the hallmarks of the banks that ran into the biggest issues. And I think when you look at banks that have really aggressively loan, grown their commercial lending books this cycle, and NYCB is a great example of that, they bought a significant mortgage originator at the top, and they bought uh, a lot of rent-controlled loans from Signature here. Um, You know, they are banks that, you know, are going to face issues. Uh, However, it's just been a great environment for the economy. Um, The government's been spending a lot of money, and so uh, the consumer's held up and the economy's held up, and that's pushed that down the the road. Um, And commercial loans uh, have longer lease terms, and they just take time to ripen. So I I think this is an issue that investors are going to be focused on this year. Cycles take time. It's not going to be an overnight issue, but I just think uh, it's kind of an untouchable area Uh, for investors. And a lot of these stocks have bounced, you know, 50, 100 percent off their lows from last year. You
2: do have two shorts, though, right? Mace and Ocean First. Yeah. So this is all around the the thesis that that the credit cycle takes long. But you may see the shoes drop in these examples. Yeah. Well,
3: you know, uh, Mace is a REIT, a very highly levered REIT. And. Uh, you know, it's had issues and it's, you know, it's up 60% in the last, you know, three, four months because people view the uh, the environment as being more favorable from a, a Fed policy perspective. But uh, they've got a lot of wood to chop, a lot of issues. You know, Ocean First falls into more of an NYCB type bank. Uh, Valley another tri-state local bank. These are banks that had a lot of multifamily exposure, uh, aggressively grew um, uh, their commercial lending books. Uh, and uh, we haven't seen the credit, you know, shoe drop yet, but... Uh, it's going to be an interesting year for them.
2: All right. Bill, thank you. Good to see you. Absolutely. Coming up, more big tech on deck. We'll break down whether the big moves in Microsoft and Alphabet could haunt Apple, Meta, and Amazon, all of which are out tomorrow. Plus, we'll dive into Investopedia's latest investor survey, the biggest fears, the favorite stocks, and, of course, where they want to park an extra $10,000 right now. Stay tuned. You're watching Fast. Fast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Alphabet and Microsoft both dropping today after yesterday's lackluster earnings reports. Alphabet posting disappointing ad revenue, while even 30 percent growth in Microsoft's cloud business didn't appease investors. We'll get more reads on those industries when Meta and Amazon report tomorrow, along with Apple. All three tech titans are out after the close on Thursday. Were you shocked at the... uh, the Alphabet in particular? I was curious. Shocked?
7: No. I mean, to me, what I really wanted to see was growth in cloud, which they Mm -hmm. did deliver. So what people really were harping on was uh, advertising not being as strong as people thought. Um, They did do a pretty significant buyback, which actually put a little bit of a floor under the, you know, helped their earnings a little bit. Um, So It was a very good quarter. I wish they had been more aggressive on cost cuts, right? Right. That was also a little bit of a disappointment. But at this valuation, I think it's really attractive. I bought some call spreads today for their next quarter. Uh, But the run-up has been huge. I think we'll
2: see this time and again. All right. Well, Mike Coe is laying out a way to play meta without risking your neck. He joins us now at the Options Action Mike.
4: Yeah, same thing that Karen was just talking about. You know, this is attractively priced, but you know the thread's engagement and the ad pricing we heard from Alphabet make me want to use options rather than purchasing the stock. The March first weekly 400-440 call spread that costs about 10 bucks or about two and a half percent of the stock price, which is approximately how much it moved today. I think that's a very reasonably priced way to make a bullish bet going into earnings rather than
8: owning the underlying.
2: Uh, what do you think about Meta? Because Meta could be bogged down by the same problems as uh, Alphabet's quarter in terms of the ads. Yeah,
5: I think I think in Meta's case though, they're they're they've got the argument on the valuation. They've got the argument in terms of I think they're seeing AI change their business now, especially as you get into reels and some of the other places. I I think this is a name where also we're not really paying attention, and I mean the market. It's not necessarily me. It's not necessarily the the society at large. But what's going on down in D.C., I think, is something that we've seen this company weather before. So um, I think Meta's numbers are going to be fine.
2: All right. Mike Co. thank you. Coming up, a pulse on the individual investor. We'll have the details from Investopedia's latest investor sentiment survey. Editor-in-chief Caleb Silver will be here on set to break it down. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. On this final trading day of January, we've got the latest investor check-in from Investopedia Editor-in-Chief Caleb Silver is here with the results of his most recent survey. Caleb, it's always good to see you. What sort of shocked me was that your readers, the participants in the survey, are finally coming around to this rally? Yeah, they're finally
10: (laughs) warming up to it. It took them a little bit over a year. Actually, in December, they started warming up a little bit more. But now we've seen them as bullish as they've been pretty much in the last 12 months. Timing is everything. Of course, this was all closed yesterday, pre-Fed today, but they were feeling confident. Now, not ragingly confident, but more people are investing than they were back in November, for sure, certainly than earlier in the year. 33% are making safer investments. That's down from 50%. So they want to get involved here, and they're really favoring stocks and ETFs.
2: Are they still favoring Magnificent Seven big cap tech stocks, or are they going more towards you know, CDs and things like that.
10: No, they're back to stocks they're and back. their favorite stocks, the biggest stocks out there, the most widely held stocks out there, are the ones that are getting punished the last couple of days, except we've seen a new uh, couple of companies enter the top 10, like AMD, some of the chip makers a little bit more popular now, some of the banks falling out.
4: President election in November, 60%. That's the top worry for investors. Is that historically what happens in a presidential election year, or is that skewed higher this year?
10: That skewed higher this year. It was higher Three and a half plus years ago, I think they're worried about the unrest, not who will sit in the Oval Office, but what chaos will that bring with it? And that was uh, high in November. It's just getting higher. I expect that to keep climbing. They're less worried about inflation, obviously. They're worried about the geopolitical environment. They're worried about relations with China right now. They're worried about the war in the Middle East. But the election kind of front and center in their psyche, not affecting trading, but affecting sort of the overall psychology.
6: Have you uh, have you done any work on you know flows tend to follow returns right so it's not surprising I think market goes up all of a sudden you get investors want to jump in Um, Have you done any work on what that means for the market? Is it a contrarian signal? Is it a a bullish signal? Yeah,
10: sometimes we're, as individual investors, a little bit late to the party. You may argue maybe they are right now, or maybe they finally feel like it's a little bit safer. But if you still look at what they're buying, there's a lot of investors, and there are mostly older, my age and older investors, individuals self-directed. They're protecting themselves with money markets and CDs, but right now they're definitely favoring risky assets, maybe not Bitcoin so much, but certainly stocks and definitely big stocks.
5: So back to the the money markets, though, in treasuries. Is that money coming out? And is, it, is that the next way for the stock market? Because I kind of feel like as you see markets go higher, the FOMO that's coming in this community and they've got like they were defensive. They did the right thing. They made a little money.
10: But uh, that money seems to be ready to roll. Absolutely. 5% was nice, but now it's not as cute when you're getting those 24% last year returns in the S&P 500. And you guys know good years usually follow great years. There's a lot that can happen here right now. So they do want to protect themselves. But again, these are self-directed active investors that want to trade. Talk about trading activity. I was just looking at Vanditrack earlier flows and buys and activity by retail investors lower now than it was last month when this rally was really picking up, higher than it was pre-pandemic, but we're nowhere near where we were in 2021 and probably won't get back there until we see a big event.
2: And I I definitely want to hit my favorite question. $10,000, where would they put that to work? ETFs and stocks.
10: Stocks, ETFs, and index funds. They want to get back in. They want to invest in the stock market. This is a very stock-heavy crowd, so they're finally feeling a little bit better about it. I wouldn't say raging, but they want to feel better about
2: it. Caleb, always good to see you. Thank Thank you. you. Caleb Silver. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade time, Tim.
5: Lulu, uh, I'm short. It's a great company, and they're certainly not going out of business, but I think it's expensive here. They gave guidance, and I think the numbers tell you the stock's got to come down.
7: Karen. Yes, a quick hello to Rudy Drex, a longtime fan of the show. My final trade, Google
2: Call Spreads. Michael.
6: Uh, I think you take advantage of this New York Community Bank uh, issue and buy bank
4: preferreds. Home Bye. goods on the west side, stock up on those mirrors,
6: mirrors. now. <laughs> Merch,
4: <Medtronic>, MDT.
2: <laughs> Thanks for watching. Fast Money, Mad Money with Tim Kramer starts right now. warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.
1: You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.